How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts... Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the co-main event mixed martial arts podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists. And for nearly the last 11 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, it's been a long time. How you doing? I'll tell you, I've been doing better. Um, I, as you may recall, ended the year sick to the point where we were going to do an extra power hour. We're going to try to squeeze in an extra CME power hour before the end of the year, before we took off for Christmas break and all that. And I just couldn't do it. Physically unable to do it. I got sick right before Christmas, ended up being sick through Christmas and the following week, which I had slotted for a vacation. Not much fun. Uh, My eldest daughter also got sick. Here's how you know that a nine-year-old is legitimately super sick. When it's Christmas morning, she starts off with the, you know, stoke level high for Christmas presents. She's operating on pure adrenaline. But then within minutes goes from sitting on the floor to open Christmas presents to laying on the floor and having her sister open them and show her what she got to then just saying, fuck it. I'm going back to bed. I will get to the rest of these Christmas presents later. Did not even finish the process of opening Christmas presents because she was too sick. And I was like, you know what, bro? Same. I know how you're feeling. So that that's how I've been doing. You know, I've been on the mend. I I kicked it, you know, felt like, okay, I'm finally over the sickness, but now I'm in that post-sickness phase where anytime you try to do anything the least bit physical, you feel like you're about to die. For a while there, I was was getting out of breath in the shower. I was having heart palpitations from going up some stairs. The last couple of days, I've been trying to get back to the gym, and you know what I look like out there? I look like a New Year's resolutioner. Because I can't oh, no, do not a that damn guy. thing without wheezing. I can barely get through a set of push-ups. I, I, I just, I look like I finally decided to try to get my life together, and it's not going great to start off. That's that's the vibe I'm projecting when I'm at the gym. I'm afraid. Uh, do you feel like you need to be going around to the gym to the other people in there and be like, no, see, I've been in here. 
Like I didn't just show up. See what had happened was yeah, be like just like from an illness, shouting out at people. Hey, did I see you here back in July? I don't know. You look familiar. You look like somebody I saw back in July because I was here. Yeah, definitely. I was here back in July. I didn't well, just start. That sounds like a terrible illness and probably the worst time of the year to have one. Yeah. Uh, my daughter had strep the week before Christmas, and then her one of her visiting cousins came to town. And immediately got the flu, like tested positive for influenza. So I know there's a lot of stuff going around, but the, just to hear you describe your symptoms, that sounds like the COVIDs, man. Did you test positive for anything at any I point? I took two different COVID tests because that's how sick I was, where I took one as soon as I started to get sick, being like, uh-oh, is it round three of COVID for me? The test said, no, it was not. But then I was so sick for like for enough days that I was like, this got to be the COVID, man. Yeah. This can't just be the flu, uh, but took it again. Nope. Said that it wasn't COVID. Um, and I didn't have any of the other symptoms I've had when, it, you know, no loss of smell or taste, just feeling absolutely terrible. Um, yeah. But now here I am ready yeah. to face a new year. Well, we're glad you're back. Frankly, uh, this feels like one of the longer breaks we've taken from podcasting in recent memory uh, just because of your illness and then the specific ways the days of the week fell during Christmas and New Year's and each of our children's breaks from school. We haven't recorded this show, the co-main event podcast proper since December 19th, Whoa. if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and obviously a lot has happened since then. The sports world in general has continued to roll on without us. So it is officially 2023 now. And as I mentioned at the top of this show, this podcast enters its 11th year, which is frankly hard to believe. Uh, we thought it made sense today as we kick off this new year to talk in general about the state of mixed martial arts, uh, where we think the sport stands in what is its 30th year as we know it. UFC 1 went down November 12th, 1993, and of course... The thing we originally called No Holds Barred has changed in unimaginable ways over the last three decades. And of course, that discussion, as we have it today, necessarily entails a broad kind of top-down look at the state of the UFC. So we'll do that. But I think we also want to discuss what's going on with the rest of the MMA landscape. Bellator and Ryzen just pulled off a combined New Year's Eve show, which I think has to be considered a win for Scott Coker and Bellator. Uh, PFL obviously continues to plug along in the wake of its first pay-per-view event. One championship is gearing up for its U.S. debut and is more available now than ever with its broadcast deal on Prime Video. So there's a lot of interesting stuff happening. We've also got some listener mail that we're going to hit up here momentarily. Ben, let's start here, though. Before we get into the meat of this discussion, where are you at personally? How would you rate your personal fandom, your personal attachment to MMA as we verge into 2023? Well, it's a little bit of a complicated question for me. Especially because, on one hand, my own situation as it relates to MMA has changed a lot over yeah. the last year. Because I worked for The Athletic. Uh, you know, we both started off when The Athletic first decided it wanted to cover MMA. We both joined the team, along with several other very talented writers and, and journalists. And then I ended up being the last man standing. 
covering the MMA at The Athletic. And it was not, that was not a great experience. And yet when The Athletic finally decided, all right, we, we don't care enough about MMA to even have one MMA writer. Uh, and my position was eliminated in a way it sort of helped to revive some of my interest at MMA because it freed me from following MMA as an obligation of my employment. It allowed me to sort of just focus on the parts that I cared about to no longer have to sit there and watch, you know, a fight night card that is not that interesting to you. And that is a whole lot of filler. And that is six to eight hours long and to instead be like, all right, I'll, Tune in once I get my kids to the bed, kids to bed in time for the main event, maybe, or maybe I'll just catch the the fights that I hear were good and worth watching tomorrow morning over a cup of coffee. That actually helped me a lot to maintain my interest in in MMA because yeah. when you are on this beat for a long time, as I was for 15 years uninterrupted, it's a long time to go through this sort of steady drumbeat of constant MMA action that is getting less important in terms of like actual bout meaning as we just oversaturate the the UFC calendar. And so you start to get a little burned out and it helped a little bit to get freed from that and to be like, I don't have to care about any of this shit if I only want to. So like then when there is one that really gets you excited, you know, it's for real. Because you don't have to be excited about it. You just genuinely are. And that helped me, I think, sort of rediscover that that almost magical big fight night feeling. And helped me to just sort of engage with it on my own terms uh, rather than on somebody else's terms for the sake of employment. Although also, now I have a new job where I do a lot of sports betting content. And right now, especially a lot of NFL sports betting content, which has sort of revived my interest in the NFL. Just from writing about it often enough that you end up watching it some and sort of reminded me of the broader sports landscape outside of MMA. Yeah. And the other thing that I feel like has really hurt my ability to enjoy MMA is in many ways, especially recently, and in one big way that I feel like we're going to end up talking about on this show, a reminder of how many terrible people there are populating the MMA landscape and populating the MMA fandom to the extent that it enables the proliferation of terrible people in MMA because so many MMA fans are shitty enough that they don't care. They don't care how many shitty people there are in this. doesn't matter to them. And that's a bummer, man. That's a bummer because when the UFC president gets caught on tape hitting his wife in public, and then the MMA Reddit thread, as Michael David Smith pointed out, had to shut down comments almost immediately because of how many people were rushing to defend the UFC president hitting his wife in public. You kind of go, what the hell is this world? Yeah. And what? Yeah. how do I justify continued interest in it? So that's tough. Yeah. And we will talk about that later as we get into our discussion of the state of the UFC in 2023. Uh, I have to say, I obviously have had a similar trajectory as you and a similar experience as you. And one of the things that I have had to teach myself over the last couple of years, and I guess this goes on with just what you were saying, goes along with that, uh, is to kind of meet this sport where where it is at 
and not necessarily where I am at or where I want it to be. Because as we'll discuss coming up later in the show, it's a different thing now than when we both started watching it. And it's a different thing than when we fell in love with it. And frankly, it's never going to be that thing again. And so while I have known that for a long time, I feel like over the last couple of years, I have engaged, learned to engage with this sport kind of on its terms, which sounds weird to say, but like, it's, it's a mental adjustment that, that dovetails with a lot of what you were saying, just sort of being like, okay, I accept that the thing that I, that I liked about this sport is largely gone, but I now revel in the freedom of being able to ingest it as as I want to and kind of ignore the rest because one of the things that has happened during the UFC's march to mainstream acceptance, which at this point we have to admit is over and it has won. It it has largely been accepted by the mainstream, even if uh, the mainstream doesn't engage with it that much. The mainstream at least acknowledges its existence. And I think acknowledges MMA as part of it, as part of the mainstream, but it's just, it doesn't care, right? Yes. So MMA has taken a spot in the mainstream sports landscape, a lot like auto racing, I would say, or maybe even here in America, the NHL, which you and I both enjoy, but doesn't get a lot of mainstream attention, doesn't get a lot of coverage. And so that that has been an adjustment for me. And I would sort of compare it to like how I feel about music or how I used to feel about music, where it was like, you know, when I was playing in punk rock bands or whatever and listening to like underground music, it always kind of felt like, okay, well, there's the music that I like. And then there's the mainstream and the two of them are different. And I concern myself largely with what happens in this world that I'm involved in and not necessarily, you know, what's going on in the mainstream. MMA felt kind of similar to me when I first got into it. And now I have to acknowledge it is completely merged with the mainstream. And so at this point, I have to interact with it as sort of like a part of the mainstream sports landscape. And kind of what that means to me is that like a lot of these fight nights are just like an NBA game in mid-January, right? Where it's just sort of like, ah, you can watch it if you want. Yeah. This you can watch the Trailblazers. versus the number nine team and neither one of them are your teams. Right. You can watch the Trailblazers play the Pistons in the middle of January if you want to. That's the thing that happens. If you don't want to watch it, that's also totally fine. Pick it back up around the playoffs and you will get into, uh, you know, stuff that actually matters and makes sense and maybe involves some emotional stakes. And the UFC is sort of the same for me at this moment. And I guess all of that is to say that I now interact with the sport much the same way you do. I consume the stuff that I want to consume or the stuff that I know is going to be newsworthy that we're going to talk about on this show. Uh, and a lot of it I treat like a Padres game in the middle of June that, you know, I'll look at the box score in the newspaper while I'm drinking my coffee. That's how I do it. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that's not a bad way to do it. Maybe it just requires a little bit of a realignment of perception, kind of, as you said, meeting this sport where it is and where it is, is churning out a ton of content. Uh, and you know, maybe that is not necessarily so bad. You're right that it is very different from back when we first started following it and there were like 12 to 15 events a year and they all really mattered. You knew everybody on them and then the UFC didn't even think enough of some of the fights to to even broadcast them anywhere. And that was certainly a different kind of thing. Yeah. The flip side of that, though, is that like 
as we've said before on num- numerous occasions, the quality of any given bout, the quality of any given MMA fighter is so much higher now. Yeah. Just yeah, that's objectively one the, better. That's one of the amazing things about the landscape of this sport is that we have witnessed its entire evolution pretty much since the, the early 90s and especially over the last decade or so. The understanding of the sport and the quality of athlete involved and the training and everyone's abilities has improved exponentially to the point where, as I have said numerous times before on this show, there are people that fight like a video game. Mm -hmm. There are people that fight in ways that at the, the genesis of MMA we decided that those fighting styles didn't work yeah, and essentially work. eliminated them from the competition. There are people now who are athletic enough and good enough at those skill sets that they've been able to reincorporate a lot of those tools that we cast aside at the beginning. And now they fight like uh, uh, they're in Street Fighter or something. And that is amazing and can't be uh, overestimated and the actual quality and physical enjoyment of watching the fights is higher than ever. And that's one of the things that makes the fact that it is harder and less satisfying than ever to actually consume the sport in its entirety so interesting. Because the the mainstream MMA product has gotten so much, I guess I'll just say worse, even though I don't know if that's the right way to say it. But it's got so much, gotten so much less enjoyable while the actual physical product in the cage has gotten so much better. It's amazing when you think about it. Yeah, I've wondered sometimes, is that because... Because you're right, worse isn't the right word for it. But it somehow feels less remarkable. Like, more um, average. More mediocre. Even though the actual quality is so much higher. And I I also think sometimes about how... We used to marvel at who are the people who seem to not consume any media about this sport, not really know anything about it other than you. there's a UFC on, and maybe I've heard of one or two people, but I'm just going to watch it because it's a UFC on. And then now I think maybe did those people have the right idea all along? Because as you'll recall, when we sat here and gave out our year-end awards and the, don't, the Joe Sun Don't Google the Fighters Award had some stiff competition for it, as it probably always will. Because it seems like the less you know about the way this sport works and the actual people in it, maybe the easier it would be to enjoy. Because one of the things, the first thing that comes to mind when you go, okay, you know, hey, maybe it's like uh, auto racing or like the NHL is viewed here in America, is that if you're a pretty mediocre NHL player, you are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year yeah, and have access to healthcare, a team that cares about your, your physical well-being, at least as long as you're on the roster. Uh, you're not working a shift at Walgreens. You're not waiting tables at Texas Roadhouse. You're not begging for a little bit of money to help you get by to the next time you get to fight and earn a little bit of money. None of that stuff. Yeah. And that, I think, more and more... Maybe because of the length of time I've spent covering this sport and talking to people in it and learning about it, the fact that that has not changed very much at all, even as 
the revenues coming in have grown constantly every year for, for a company like the UFC. That gets more and more dispiriting. Yeah. More so even than it used to be. Google tells me that the league minimum in the NHL is $750,000 a year. The average salary is $3.5 million a year in case you're, in case you're keeping score at home. Uh, remember, you're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast proper. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines and podcast libraries. Don't forget to go out and follow the show on Instagram over at CME If You Nasty. Again, that's CME If You Nasty, all one word. And if you really want to support the show, well, you know where you, you can find us. Ben Folks and I are over on the Patreon page all week, churning out that additional MMA content that plants crave. We got the Wednesday live chat where we take your questions for a full 60 minutes. We've got Thursday's Doing the Damn Thing podcast, and we've got Friday's Power Hour, an extra hour of curated MMA talk. Uh, from the two hosts you love to love equally get down with us we've got a patronage tier for every budget head over to patreon.com slash co-main event and sign up to join the team support the podcast that supports you so tenderly now that christmas shopping is over and the new year beckons what better way to change for the new year than to refresh your wardrobe with some official CME merchandise. Head on over to our brand new merch shop. You'll find old favorites like the original Dundasso t-shirt and the old school cowboy astronaut cigarettes t-shirt. You can also find a lot of cool new stuff like the brand new Are You Fucking Kidding Me shirts, officially licensed merchandise merchandise from the dreaded MMA gods, and of course, the hottest seller on the market, the Bobby Nux shirt. Yep. Just go over to our website, comainevent.com, and click the link at the top of the page that says shop. We're partnering with our friends at Superconductor on the shop. Uh, Superconductor is a brand and design studio. You've seen their work with the CME for a long time uh, from our guy, Johnny Ashcroft. If you have any design needs, we can't recommend them highly enough. Hit them up at studiosuperconductor.com or on Instagram at studiosuperconductor. All right. Like we always do about this time now, let's get in to a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, first piece of listener mail this week comes from our guy, Nobby Buckles. Can't think of a better way to kick off the year than with an email from Nobby Buckles, one of the admins over on the official CME Discord message board, a guy that we met in the summer during the 10-year anniversary meetup down in Vegas. He's a hell of a guy. And this week he writes, as the resident Buffalo Bills fan, I am distraught over what happened to DeMar Hamlin on Monday Night Football. I'm glad the league finally canceled the game after an hour of farting around. And I think we all recognize that the sport can wait while someone's life literally hangs in the balance and his teammates are crying on the field. My question is, 
What would the UFC do in a situation like this? We've all heard of fighters being transported after the fights, and we all recognize that they are risking their lives in the cage. But if a fighter were transported out in an ambulance and in critical condition, would the fights just carry on like normal? Would it be different if it were a just some fights show in the Apex versus a pay-per-view in Houston or New York City? Sorry if this is kind of a bummer, but I appreciate you guys for always keeping it real and unfettered. Now, this was... Obviously, the you know biggest happening in sports of last night, the biggest happening in sports of, of some time, and a, a, a tragic event, uh, uh, like a, a very serious event, where at this point we know that DeMar Hamlin collapsed on the field during this game between the Cincinnati Bengals and the Buffalo Bills because of cardiac arrest. Uh, and last I checked this morning, was still in critical condition at the hospital. Uh and, you know, that this is one of those things that I guess is a stark reminder of these con, con, you know, contact sports, not even combat sports, but just high impact contact sports like professional football in the NFL and the risks that all these people are taking, the effect that it can have on their lives uh, and their bodies. And uh, again, it to me is a reminder of uh, the stakes here and also, again, not to just keep beating a dead horse, but the compensation, man, like, uh, you know, the, 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 we just said the league minimum in the NHL is $750,000 where they're flying around crashing into each other on ice gates. DeMar Hamlin, of course, suffers this terrible, uh, physical ailment during a game, but it just, uh, it reinforces to me. Once again, you got guys in the UFC who in many cases are risking their health, their future health and their lives for almost no money comparatively in the grand scheme of things. And so it just brings all of that to my mind as we see this terrible happening during Monday night football this week. Yeah. And you know, one thing to note here is that as Nobby Buckles notes, there was an awful lot of indecision about what they were going to do about this game. And uh, not to correct Nobby Buckles on a fact, but more the more we hear about how this actually went down the more it sounds like that it was not really the league deciding to suspend this game so much as it was the players and th- through the players association communicating to the league that we're not going back out there we're not going to continue to play like you, they didn't really give the league a choice to say do you want to suspend this game or not they because they have a players association they have a a body to look out for them as the labor in this league and to communicate with one voice and to have a representative on each team that can then uh, talk to the team in the locker room communicate it to the players association which can then in turn communicate it to league and they have this established ability to stand together and make a decision together and have support for that decision and that is a huge difference from what you see in mma and in the ufc and so it wasn't really that the NFL looked at this one and said, you know what, that we should we should not go out there and finish this game. It was that the the players basically had that ability to talk about it amongst themselves and say, we are not playing this game. And we are informing you of the fact that we're not going back out there and playing this game while we don't know if our teammate is going to live or die. And so to compare that to how would it go in the UFC, I mean, I feel like we've kind of, seen enough of how it would go that we've seen some pretty bad moments in MMA, in in the cage, in the UFC and other organizations. We've seen some moments where somebody goes down 
And it is not clear immediately that they're going to be okay. And what generally happens is that we just sort of avoid it with the cameras and the commentators don't really talk about it. And then it's a thing later. We just sort of slide them off stage as quietly as we can. And then resume the stuff as quickly as possible there i've never seen i've I've seen some bad ones where it seemed like with a sport like this especially when you have a knowledge of boxing's history you're always kind of waiting for the the worst possible outcome to just the odds are going to catch up to you sooner or later you're you're in a a hurting game it's a hurt business and that whether it's through the actual blunt force head trauma or just that, you know, somebody gets in there and we've, as we've established pre-fight medicals are a joke. They're something that we do in this sport so that the athletic commissions can kind of cover their ass, but nobody has ever really doubted their ability to sneak a, a bad injury past the, uh, stay athletic commissions. You guys fought without an eye. <laughs> there people fought with broken bones all kinds of stuff of course people could fight with like a heart condition or some other thing that could uh potentially be life-threatening so i think we always kind of have that in the back of our heads that that could happen and i've been at fights at ufc fights or at wec fights strike force fights bellator whatever where something happens somebody is down for a long time you think this could be bad and the emphasis is usually on getting them out of the cage, getting them to the back, taking a look at it, getting them to the hospital if they need to. But never have I seen anything where it seemed like there was even a discussion about should we have the rest of the fights or not. Yeah. They're going to have the rest of those fights. Yeah. And they don't have the fighters don't have that ability to stand together and say, you know what, we think it, we don't want to keep having the fights after what we just saw. And also, they know that if they did that, they wouldn't be paid. And they yeah. need to be paid. Yeah. And you know what? As it pertains to Nobby's actual question, I think a lot of it has to do with just the culture of combat sports in general, both boxing and mixed martial arts, and kind of how different we relate to injury and risk than we do in some of the other mainstream sports. Because like you said, like people are leaving in the ambulance all the time in combat sports. And, you know, it would obviously be a very scary and tragic situation if it seemed like someone had to be administered CPR in the cage, like uh, Hamlin was on the field and all that. But I also think like uh, if, if a person in critical condition was transported away from an MMA event or a boxing event, uh, in, in an ambulance, it just wouldn't necessarily make the same kind of dent in the combat sports consciousness as it would in, in football, just because I think that we exist a lot closer to all of that stuff all of the time. Right. And it just, it wouldn't feel like quite as big of an event. Now, if someone actually did, uh, pass away, knock on wood, that that doesn't happen, uh, in front of our eyes at any of these big boxing or combat sports events. Uh, I think that might, you know, be a different story in terms of what kind of news item it would be. But at the same time, like, you know, just when you look at like CTE, right. And like, there is a much bigger deal culturally made around former football players having CTE than there is around former boxers having CTE. And, and a lot of that has to do with with football just being a bigger mainstream element than boxing. But another part of it 
is that I think people look at boxers where they, you know, they have had pugilista nervosa for pugilista dementia. Yeah. Yeah. For decades. Right. Which is essentially CTE. It's the same thing, I think. Uh, And I think people look at combat sports athletes and it's sort of and they sort of think, you know, for better or for worse, they think, well, what did you expect? Right. Right. Like you're out here punching each other in the head. And then later it turns out people have CTE. Well, of course they do. So unfortunately, I think there's just more of a callousness in the culture around combat sports than there are around some of these other contact sports that we all kind of grew up playing and may have played in high school and are far more assimilated into the mainstream culture. Right. And I think a lot of it is that what you get used to in following some of these sports, because it's really sort of a recent development of the NFL even caring as much as it does now about concussions, of having a concussion protocol, of uh, the fans really paying attention to it. How many times we've seen before, you know, those euphemisms, somebody, somebody's shaking up on the play somebody's slow to get up all that kind of stuff and we just want them to be able to stagger off of the field onto the sidelines and then let the game go on and you're right like can you imagine you know if there's an nba game somebody gets drilled in the nose or something somebody gets split open in their face with an elbow or something and they're down on the court and blood is pouring out onto the court it would be a big deal it'd be shocking you know, and people will be talking about it. Even the person ends up getting stitched up and fine, even returning to the game, something like that. Um, and in fight sports, that's just Saturday night. Somebody always going to end up gushing blood on the thing. That's what this is. That That's that's the, the business we have chosen, as Hyman Roth would say, Chad. And so we get so used to that. And so the the level of human carnage it takes to get us to be a little bit shocked and jarred and, and take notice is necessarily higher because we're just sort of used to that being a normal cost of doing business in this sport. But I also think that it translates in a weird way, even more so in fight sports and in MMA specifically than in in something like football to like a disregard for the athletes. People get so used to just seeing them be put through some of this stuff that they think, oh, they're warriors and let them go out on their shield. That's what they want. That's what they signed up to this thing for. They'd be fine. And that there's not, a whole lot of consideration given to the individual athlete. Yeah. All right. We're going to do this next one from Christian King who writes this just in John Jones just hit a school bus and sprayed cocaine across the first responders faces. Social workers are on crack. Good job, John low level Patreon supporter here following up on Glover Tashira versus Yuri Prohaska as the fight of the year. Uh, I have disliked MMA since 2018 and just watched this fight tonight for the first time. I listened to your review at the time, but didn't hear you, whatever that means. Uh, I was still surprised by the outcome. What a fight. My disdain for the sport knows no bounds, but I still hold on to one last hope, the light heavyweight division. The flux, the flexing history has me fascinated. These are dark times. Doom looms looms on the horizon. But will a pillar in this division prophesize a healthy future for MMA? Is the light heavyweight division a linchpin in the game i think so uh so basically i think he's saying like he's interested now in the turnover the the chaos more than anything in the light heavyweight division and i agree that it is interesting you know it, it has me in some ways flashing back to the fall of chuck liddell and what happened in the aftermath of that where everyone basically got to take the belt home for a night like it was the Stanley Cup because there was so much turnover at the top. And I think maybe that naturally happens when you have a dominant champion who is no longer dominant or no longer there. Uh, But I don't know. It's hard for me to look at the light heavyweight division right now as a true light in the UFC or like a focal point in the UFC uh, because it used to be 
through, you know, again, throughout the formative years of the UFC and all of our time coming up as fans, the light heavyweight division was the real glamour division of the UFC where you had uh, Chuck Liddell and Randy Couture and Vitor Belfort and Tito Ortiz and all these other stars that the UFC basically had in a round robin tournament for years and years. I don't necessarily think about it that way anymore. And it might uh, just be the state of things, but I'm far, far more likely to point out the lighter weight classes now, you know, lightweight, featherweight, uh, as the most interesting divisions for me. I'm interested to see how the 205-pound division shakes out and who ultimately comes out on top, but I wouldn't put it at the top of my personal uh, list of like what I am interested in in the UFC as we move into this new year. Yeah, what I thought was really interesting about the, the Glover versus Yuri fight was that especially when you compare it to the years of John Jones' dominance, the level of MMA that we saw in that fight was not as high. Technically, was not as sharp all around. It was a little bit sloppy at times, messy, but fun as all hell. Like a sloppy good time is what it was. And I think especially since it happened close enough to the the end of the John Jones era as he left theoretically for heavyweight still at this point, uh it allows you to kind of contrast it and be like, okay, this guy we still recognize was technically the best fighter in the history of that division and probably one of the best fighters in the history of the sport. And yet it got to a point where we weren't having quite as much fun watching it. And he didn't seem all that motivated even while he was doing it. And then you see these two guys in a just desperate, bloody struggle that is not nearly as technically proficient, but is a whole lot more fun. And we kind of went, well, maybe technical proficiency is overrated because we were having a good ass time watching that fight. I go back and watch that fight right now. It is, that was still a highlight for me and easily fight of the year for me. And as far as like extrapolating from that to is the light heavyweight, the division again, the glamor division for the UFC. Well, your man Yuri P suffered the worst shoulder injuries in the history of shoulders. Let's not forget. And then what did we get in his place? A way less fun fight for the vacant strap between Jan Blahovich and Magomed Ankalaev. Like so, th- there might be some some high highs still out there for us, but there are also some low lows. Yeah, is yeah. not as and I, I mean I, I agree with you that as far as like what the average fighter in the division is capable of and the kind of quality of fights that they can give us the lighter weight. They've been better for a while, you know, from 155 to 135 easily uh, any given title fight. in those is, is going to be really good. And you know, any one of the top three to five fighters in most of those divisions are super good. That's why you got to win seven fights in a row at some of those weight classes before we even remember your name. But I, I do think for a whole lot of people, there is still a certain appeal and a certain magic to hearing two big ass dudes are going to fight each other tonight. Meaty yeah. men slapping meat kind of thing. Yeah. yeah and it's, sure. it would be heavyweight if they fought more often, maybe. Uh, or if there were just more than a couple people at any given time who seemed like they had the potential to be the best in the division. A light heavyweight was kind of that sweet spot where they were big enough to hold that appeal. A couple big ass dudes who, if you saw them in a bar, you'd be scared of them, that kind of shit. But also who were good enough athletes and frequent enough competitors 
and were not had not been roped into a life in some other sport where you know you got to be the biggest strongest dude and so it felt like okay it's just sort of like the the medium ground for us yeah all right, we got this one from the Toucan Ham asking us basically what are some of our favorite or would be our favorite fantasy matchups that we wish we could see outside of weight class. Some of mine are, and then he lists Alex Pereira versus Jamal Hill, Cyril Gaon versus Israel Adesanya, Henry Cejudo versus Alexander Volkanovsky, uh, Barnett versus Tuivasa. I assume he means Chris Barnett and not Josh uh, Barnett and the... Uh, Peter Yan versus Davison Figueredo, and then Dylan Danis versus Hasbula. Uh, what <laughs> Get the what fuck are out. some of yours? <laughs> now, I assume we're supposed to mean that everybody is still their own size during these the, these fantasy matchups, and not like we're going to create a heavyweight version of Demetrius Johnson or something right. like that. Because were that possible, were science able to make that possible? You know, give me that a hundred times out of a hundred and damn the consequences. But I think he's talking about the real world here. What interdivision matchups come to mind as something you would like to see? I think, you know, mentioning Alex Pereira there first is a good one because because he seems like such a big middleweight, you could fantasy match make a whole lot of fights for him in divisions above. And it's plausible that he'd do pretty well at them. You know? An Alex Pereira walkabout yeah. like uh, BJ Penn had back in the day where he just basically went on a vision quest and fought guys up to and including uh light heavyweight uh, version of Lyoto Machida. Yeah. I mean, we might want to keep him away from some wrestlers uh, just, just for the sake of having ourselves a good time as we moved him up in weight class. But you could honestly like... You could match him up against some heavyweights in the UFC and you, you would have my attention. Yeah. You know, I would not feel like it was a mismatch necessarily. Uh, and I would be real interested to see how it would go. I think we just take Henry Cejudo and see how high we could take him. Right. <laughs> to see like, all right, what's the biggest guy you can beat? Yeah. Okay. I'll be up for that. How about he shows up once a month and we just against a progressively bigger and bigger people until he loses. Yeah. You know, him or Aljamain Sterling, someone. We basically, we found the toughest little guy, and then we're like, how high can you go? I do think that, in general, if you look at the history of it, don't you feel like it's kind of a, like, almost a little bit of a, a bring-down bummer to how often we've learned when we actually do this stuff in practice, rather than just in theory, that they have weight classes for a reason? Yeah. How many times we've we seen somebody look great in their weight class and really forced push themselves to that challenge to uh, fight a bigger guy and even a bigger guy who is not that great can beat them or at yeah. least you know make them look not so great and you go oh, okay yeah I guess we didn't just accidentally end up with the weight classes the way they are yeah uh, Israel Adesanya in fact taught us that just yeah. here pretty recently yep. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link at the top right-hand corner that says email the podcast. We are going to get into our discussion of the state of mixed martial arts in 2023 right after this. All right, Ben, uh, we will begin our discussion of the state of mixed martial arts in 2023, obviously with the UFC. And there are clearly a bunch of places we could start, a bunch of places we could go with the discussion. But I think 
just owing to the events of the last week or so, we have to start with this Dana White controversy uh, where he was captured on video in a physical altercation, slapping his wife, his longtime wife of nearly 30 years in the face in the VIP area of a club in Cabo San Lucas in Mexico, TMZ, as ever, with the video and the report and then the follow-up statement from Dana White. And obviously we could say a lot of things about it and how reprehensible it is and how uh, arresting it is to see the video, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sure we will talk about that in a second. But I would just like to say this seems to me like the biggest test of the Endeavor era that we have seen thus far uh, because we still haven't, as we record this, seen really any comment from Endeavor. We don't know what will happen to, to Dana White, if anything, if he will suffer any consequences at all. But we've talked about a lot on this show, just how Endeavor seems to want to have a plug and play relationship with the UFC. They basically yeah. want a set it and forget it relationship with the UFC in that you know, Ari Emanuel and Patrick Whitesell and all these other big wigs from Endeavor they don't want to get their hands dirty in the day-to-day operations of the UFC. They don't want to be negotiating with Ali Abdelaziz about whether or not his client is going to get 20 and 20 or 12 and 12, right? Like they want Dana White to run all of that for them. And they just want to cash the checks. They just want the UFC to be the jewel of the Endeavor investment portfolio. And as long as Dana White can keep churning out that money for Endeavor, they seem totally fine with whatever he does. Now, this could be a different thing, though, right? Because it is hard to imagine any person, any high-profile person in the landscape of sports having an incident like this happen where he is on video in a public place slapping his wife in the face, not not pushing her, not wrestling around with her, not getting into any other kind of physical altercation, which would be bad enough, slapping her in the face. It's hard to imagine anyone else not suffering a consequence for that. And so I think it will be very interesting to see what, if anything, Endeavor does here with Dana White. Yeah. I mean, you say like Endeavor definitely does have that uh, outlook on the UFC where it just wants the ATM to keep spitting out money. Honestly, ESPN seems to have a very similar outlook on the UFC where I saw, uh, you know, somebody reached out to the ESPN for comment and they were like, hey, ask the UFC. We just show the fights, man. We don't run this shit. Um it's. It made me think, well, a few things right away. One is, here's where it's nice to have fostered a very cozy relationship with gossip gutter rag TMZ, as the UFC has done for years. We've remarked in the past how often TMZ seems to be able to get, get a hold of Dana White when they need to, how often they were able to catch people come, coming out of the airport, shit like that. Um, that the UFC has really leaned into TMZ's coverage rather than the other people who seem to regard them as like a, an annoyance that you can't get rid of. Because can you imagine if the NFL commissioner is caught on video hitting his wife in the VIP section of a club? I don't think that comes out in a, in a story where TMZ allows that person to frame the entire incident the way they did here with this story. I think they just run the video with whatever half-baked ass witness account they have from whoever they bought the video from, and they just run it. And then afterwards, if the person wants to talk to them, fine. But here, this comes out, the TMZ video comes out with Dana White talking about it before, like they had it, got him to talk about it, which is not how they usually do things. And even the way they write up this story on TMZ, 
There is not a friendlier, kindler, gentler way to run a story about a guy hitting his wife in public than what yeah. they do. For one thing, the headline is Dana White nightclub fight with wife on NYE. Dana says there's no excuse. Um, and then the first line is Dana White and his wife got physical with each other on New Year's Eve. It even says at one point, it says, Dana leaned over to say something to Anne. She reacted by slapping him across the face. Dana immediately slapped her back in the face before friends jumped in and pulled them apart. No, that is not what the video shows. In fact, nobody lays a hand really on Dana to stop him from doing this stuff. He hits her more than once. He seems to pursue the altercation after she hits him and people pull her away. People are, if anything, by the end of the video, apparently comforting Dana. A woman comes up, rubs his head. Like, they're just like, oh, Dana, calm down. Like, this is not friends jumping in, pulling them apart after they each hit each other once. Like, that is not what the video shows. It is the kindest possible way for them to frame this shit because of this cozy relationship that they have with Dana White. And then it ends with this statement attributed to his wife. I don't know if she's said anything else where she's like, both sides were to blame, whatever. It's So right there, that's already different from how it would probably be if the head of another pro sports organization were, were in this exact same situation. But you also, I mean, it's really impossible to imagine the commissioner of the NFL, uh, NFL owner, NBA owner, even a head coach doing this, and they're not being really immediate consequences. And Dana White, as we've seen in the past, does not seem subject to those same consequences. The insane thing about this to me, Chad, He's got his name all over a slap fighting league. Yeah. That premieres on TBS next week. Dana White's power slap league. The slap league guy just slapped his wife in public. You're, you're almost to an onion headline right there. It's ridiculous. And, and are we even going to see anything? Like, will TBS even delay perhaps? the premiere of the power slap, or are we just going to go with, Hey, the guy you might've saw slapping his wife. Here's his slap league. Are we going to do that the very next week? Cause it kind of seems like we probably are, as you've said before, there's no standard of conduct applied to most people in this sport, aside from occasionally the media, but like the, the president of the UFC. Nope. No standard of conduct applied to him. And I I kind of vexed as to why. Because, I mean, for one thing, can you imagine, just as a fun thought experiment, Chad, I want you to close your eyes and imagine, just imagine, what would Dana White have to say about it if Ariel Helwani had been caught on tape slapping his wife? What would he have to say? Yeah. Can you imagine? Well, one of the... I hesitate to even use the word ironic here, but like one of the ironic things about this is that Dana wife has previously said, I believe his quote, I didn't look it up, but I, my brain tells me that his quote at the time from years ago was there's no coming back from that. Yeah. I think is what he said. There's no coming back woman. from putting your hands on a woman. Uh, and he, he references that quote in his statement to TMZ, although misquotes himself in a way to perhaps not specifically referenced that his word choice was there's no coming back from that. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess I, I feel, I feel naive about this because I've been in this sport for going on 25 years, whatever it is. 
I'll be surprised a little bit if there is zero consequence, right? Like if you're endeavor, do you like, do you have to suspend him? Do you have to put out a statement? Do you have to do anything? Because if you do nothing, if you do nothing, that's a pretty bald faced statement in and of itself, right? That, hey man, we're just here for the money and we don't care at all what happens in and around this sport that we in essence own. Yeah, but okay, one thing, and I, I hate to say this, but it is absolutely true, um, is that it is, is, in a way, extremely fortunate timing for Dana White that this story dropped Monday, or late afternoon, early evening. You know, by the time I saw it, it's like 5.30 around our time uh, on Monday evening. An hour later, the Monday night football game starts, and almost immediately in the first quarter of this football game, this terrible incident happens. And so the entire sports world is focused on that and will remain focused on that. Uh, And it already takes a lot for the mainstream sports world to notice what's going on in the MMA bubble. Yeah. Um, And even when it does notice, I have been over the years surprised and shocked over and over again at how many times when the sports world does notice what's going on in MMA, they kind of go, eh, that's what we assumed you guys were up to. We, we assumed that you guys were a bunch of just knuckle-dragging idiots. So yeah, we kind of assumed that it's a cesspool and a sewer over there. We're not surprised to learn that we're right. And I, I could definitely see if it ends up being something like that, because it's you don't see a ton of mainstream media attention on this story the morning after. And I, I don't know. I feel similar to when we found out that Dana White was being extorted by his favorite stripper. And that for a while, the Las Vegas courts were willing to go to great lengths to keep his name out of the story. And then when it finally came out afterwards, then he was even able to just be like, Oh yeah, no, these people tried to extort me over this, this, uh, stripper who I was uh, paying to be in this relationship with. And it was just like, okay, people didn't seem that surprised by that. And I, especially, I think that one of the things that is the, the most disappointing and yet not surprising to me is how, when you do see a response from within the MMA community, it's a whole lot of people being like, uh, ready to make excuses for Dana White. He says, you're, you're right that his quote was, um, You've heard me say for years, there's never an excuse for a guy to put his hands on a woman. That's not exactly what you say. You say there's no coming back from it. And now here I am on TMZ talking about it. And right away, you saw a predictably shitty response from a lot of shitty MMA fans to be like, well, she slapped him first or whatever, you know, like uh, the predictable sort of excuses from people who don't really believe that there is no excuse for it, who believe that there are plenty of excuses for it. And they seem to have spent a weird amount of time thinking of them. Yeah. And so I think that kind of combination of the mainstream media people didn't expect better, aren't paying that close attention. Anyway, the people who are paying close attention inside the sport, uh, already maybe have a higher tolerance for shitty behavior, especially from somebody like Dana white. I think it's entirely possible. Nothing happens. And that kind of stuff, like when we're talking about the state of your MMA fandom, like I, I've seen several people who I regard as reasonable people on Twitter kind of asking some version of this question. But like when some shit like this pops off and you go, what am I doing in this fucked up world? Why do I want to like expose myself to this? Yeah. Because it's depressing. 
It is. And it's one of the more disheartening things to happen in a while. Uh, and I say that knowing that it happens just days after MMA fighter Kelvin Gastelum tweeted that we all think they should probably just release Andrew Tate just days after Andrew Tate was arrested for human trafficking. He felt sure um, that was a, a majority position that we all yeah. were thinking it. Yeah. Uh, but now that we're we're over 50 minutes into this show, and I, we've, I feel like we promised that we would have a state of MMA in 2023 discussion, I don't necessarily know if we've even gotten there yet. So I will just say this as an effort to shift gears a little bit here, but with this incident and the uh, genesis of the Slap League and Dana White's kind of hands-off approach to the UFC recently, not even showing up for many events, not showing up for many uh, press conferences, being more interested in his own diet and uh, medical advisor now than he is in the UFC. People are saying he's getting scammed. Does all of this force us to perhaps for the first time realistically consider a UFC world without Dana White or a future and maybe not too far away where he's not involved anymore. You know, especially as you point out, like for me, the stuff where he just seems less and less interested in it. Like I would be more likely to believe that that would be the root cause of moving on to a UFC without Dana White than any sort of disciplinary reaction from anybody. Because I think that a lot of those people who are sitting there raking in the money that the UFC is bringing are quick to attribute it to just say like, this is a result of Dana White running the damn thing. And really what we have actually seen is that the UFC is kind of a monster that runs itself in a lot of ways, or that is run by a legion of extremely hardworking underlings, like almost abusively hardworking underlings who make the UFC work the way it is. And Dana White can hang out and inject testosterone and eat Cheeto pancakes and whatever. And does not, is not really in there cranking the wheels to make this thing run the way it does at this point. Yeah. I mean, this is the weirdest spot. I feel like we've seen Dana White in perhaps during his entire tenure as UFC president, just in terms of all of those things that we just mentioned. And because the UFC now is apparently this sort of self-fulfilling perpetual motion machine, money-making juggernaut, it's weird to say this, but at one time, it would be hard to imagine the UFC without Dana White. But now... I feel like if tomorrow Endeavor was like, hey, Dana White is going to retire. He's not the president of the UFC anymore. We're going to promote Hunter Campbell. He's the new president of the UFC. I don't feel like anything would even change, right? Like you might be absent the occasional headline making quote from a press conference, but even those don't happen that often anymore. I feel like if Dana White just kind of evaporated from the MMA world, it would change very, very little about how this world operates from day to day at this point. Right. And I mean, I don't think anybody's bought a single pay-per-view to see Dana White because that's not how that business model works. And more and more, he does not seem interested in promoting fighters. He seems interested in talking shit about them when they do anything less than be uh, absolutely perfect fighting machines who shut the hell up and, and never complain. So, like, nobody has talked more shit on UFC fighters than the UFC promoter. 
than the president of the UFC. Nobody has been more critical of them. Nobody has unpromoted as many fighters as Dana White. So I think you're right that you could remove him from the position and you don't really lose anything from the the business churning right along. Uh, I just think that I don't know if there's anybody who is in the power position, raking in the money, who cares enough to apply that pressure. Yeah. Which I guess leads me to my next question, which actually is about the UFC as we verge into 2023, right? We have talked at length on this show before about how much the UFC product has changed. Uh, we have talked about how UFC contracts have changed, and which sets the stage for the departure of people like Nate Diaz, the potential departure of Francis Ngannou. Uh, where do you see the UFC positioned as we head into 2023 i guess we talked just a week ago about how 2022 was sort of a year without stars in the ufc and that it didn't seem to matter i guess i'll ask you a two-fold question here like number one what's the future of endeavors ownership of the ufc uh and number number two like where where do you see the ufc going i guess in 2023 because it seems to me like uh you know just to train picking up more and more speed on the same track as we as we head into this year. Yeah, and I think that uh, the focus for the UFC for a while now has been just more markets, more lucrative TV deals in those markets, and as Ari Emanuel had said about the UFC, removing the lumpiness from the business. Yeah. In other words, finding more ways to make sure you get paid regardless of people watching and paying for it. And I think uh, TV rights deals in, in more and more markets is a big part of that. And stuff like site fees that let's get paid to go to these arenas, make them pay us to go to their cities and bring the economic impact of the UFC there. I think that's probably where their focus is. The focus is definitely not from their perspective on making the big fights, doing whatever needs to be done, writing whatever checks need to be written to get the big fights made. I think if anything, as we saw the past year showed that they don't have to do that. The, the past couple years, really. I mean, the the I think that the UFC maybe learned some not so great lessons uh, from the the pandemic. For like, look how long they continue to do shows at the apex, long after the point when you need to, where you could be back out on the road a whole lot, but kind of learning, you know what, you can just run this stuff from here a lot easier, a lot less expense, uh, and you don't really miss the live gate money that much anyway, and you don't feel like you're losing anything by not sort of going out on the road and spreading the gospel of the UFC the way you needed to, because you're just making so much guaranteed money from right steals. Yeah. I guess an interesting facet of this, of that is that we think that 2023 is the last year of the ESPN deal. Uh, and as you mentioned, the UFC seems to be focused a lot now on live rights and broadcast rights and everything like that. I wonder if there will be a feeding frenzy for the live broadcast streaming rights for the UFC by the end of this year if it will re-sign with ESPN, if ESPN wants to have it back. We have seen in the past the UFC's relationship, especially with these broadcasters, going back even to the Spike TV days and then through the Fox era, doesn't always end on the on the friendliest of terms. Right. And it's possible, despite the fact that ESPN has kept up a fairly 
blank poker face during its tenure with the UFC. It's possible that ESPN is starting to have some misgivings here. You know that there are a lot of people behind the scenes in the company uh, who maybe don't look favorably on this relationship with the UFC. A lot of things about the UFC, I think, probably don't sit well with a lot of people behind the scenes at ESPN. And now you have this new uh, situation of Dana White striking his wife in public a week before the Power Slap League is set to hit the airwaves in on TNT. Uh, I wonder if does ESPN try to re up or do we see some of these other streamers like Amazon Prime, like uh, Netflix, for example, which has for a long time stayed away from live sports rights, but it seems like that is a business that they will have to get in, I would think, as we move forward. Do we see some of these other streamers with the deep pockets start to pony up more money to try to land the UFC, or ultimately do we get to like August and the UFC and ESPN just sort of quietly announce an extension to their to their broadcast deal? Well, I mean, I think that there's two parts to it, right? because remember when we were looking at the UFC investor deck that they were passing around uh, right after the sale and one of the pitch to potential investors why you should why the UFC is a good buy worth four billion dollars was that live sports broadcast rights are only going up because there's not that many of them and they only come up every once in a while and the UFC's timing was pretty good it was coming up at a time when there weren't other big live sports broadcast rights that were coming available and that even as the the viewership market for a lot of things has fractured as you get more and more streaming services live sports is still pretty strong and live sports is still a thing that you can sell reliable advertising on it's one of the only things where you can count on people actually sitting there live through it at a given time and there's way less of that available and so it's hard to see Anybody not seeing that opportunity of the UFC uh, rights coming available and being like, let's at least throw a hat in the ring and see if we could get something big here going. Like you said before, it sure seems like Amazon doing a deal with uh, one championship wasn't necessarily because it wanted to forever be in the one championship business, but because it was dipping a toe to see what MMA live rights could do for you. And that if you, if you like that result, then maybe when the UFC's rights come up, you become a bidder for that. The other side of it is that historically one thing we've seen ESPN do is overspend for live rights all at one big time, then turn around years down the road and go, oh shit, we're overextended here. Um, we need to cut back some other places. I believe uh, you you personally were a victim of that once when you when yeah. you worked at ESPN and were among the layoffs when they, when they went through one of those rounds, but that they might also be, look and see, okay, we maybe this helped us get the streaming service off the ground. It helped bring in a, a reliable audience and, and get some subscribers while we were building it up and get a whole bunch of other stuff on there. Now, do we want to be in that business for the foreseeable future or do we want to focus on other areas? Um, yeah. So like that's also a possibility, especially yeah. if the UFC comes back and says, Hey, Amazon just offered us, you know, a, uh, 80% increase in the, the rights fees. Does the UFC be like, mm, we feel like you've gotten a little too comfortable taking the lumpiness out of the business and not caring if people watch or not. Like maybe you can go ahead with on with Amazon and we'll focus on, uh, you know, other sports that, that we have managed to add to the streaming service in the meantime. Yeah. And a part of that, which was 
first put in our brains by a, a, an emailer to the podcast whose name I can't remember right off the top of my head, but it was somebody smart who questioned whether or not we would see the UFC break up parts of its broadcast portfolio for different streamers, right? That you might have pay-per-views on ESPN. Maybe you would have uh, various uh, fight nights on, let's say, Amazon Prime. Maybe the Dana White Contender Series would be on the Fight Pass. Like, you might not have one, a one-stop shop for UFC programming anymore, which I think might make us look back on the ESPN days quite favorably if suddenly that happened and suddenly we had to uh, you know, turn back the clock to the to the days of the Facebook prelims where we're trying to figure out where all this stuff is streaming and how much we have to pay for it and where it's available and, and things like that. That's a very real possibility, I think, as this ESPN deal nears its sunset. So it will be interesting to see what happens with that as we move forward with the UFC. It will be interesting to see um, if free agency becomes more the way of the world in MMA, if Francis Ngannou sticks around, if he leaves, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I think for the large part, especially in the UFC in 2023, I think you see more of the same. I think you see individual fighters becoming less and less important. Even the Conor McGregor's of the world become less and less important to the UFC's bottom line. And I think what you see is just more of what we have seen the past couple of years. And that is like an endless cavalcade of fight night events staffed by fighters who come in off the contender series, uh, fighters who are still on fairly low pay tiers. And, you know, every once in a while we put together a blockbuster pay-per-view main event when it can be done inside our budget. And aside from that, I think you just see sort of more and more of the UFC being the product rather than the fighters, which in some ways is unfortunate, but in other ways is the dream scenario that the UFC crafted for itself a couple decades ago. So yeah, it's the way uh, this has been heading for a while. Yeah. All right. Let's, before we get out of here, let's talk about some of these other uh, MMA promotions as we head into the new year. As I mentioned, Bellator and Ryzen just had their crossover event in Japan on new year's Eve. Uh, Lots of pride vibes. I think you could say some cool walkouts and for the most part, it seemed like Bellator kind of cleaned up in these actual fights. Yeah. And so you, you look at this thing, and despite the fact that I think that they got some probably deserved criticism for not having this thing on live in the States, from my understanding, that you had to watch it kind of on a tape delay, uh, I still think that this event seemed like it was a, as sizable a win for Scott Coker and Bellator as we have seen, you know, at least during recent memory. Yeah, and as we said before, that seems like if you're going to try to make up some of the ground, the vast ground between the UFC and every other MMA promoter, one of the ways you have to do it is by being willing to do the things that the, the fan base might want, but that the UFC is not willing to do. Co-promotion is one of those things. Um, but also some of the things like uh, caring about more of a live event production value, more of a putting on more of a glittery show rather than just marching out the content and everybody's wearing the same clothes all the time. And so a, a New Year's show from Japan is a great way to do that kind of stuff. And a co-promotion rising, it's a fun thing, gets people talking. It, it feels like you're willing to take some chances. And it did seem like it worked out well for Bellator. Again, though, as the, it, it seems like the problem ongoing for Bellator is how do you make it easier for people to actually see it? Right. And that is, especially as 
all these other people take advantage of the the rise of more and more streaming avenues to get their stuff seen more easily. It seems like Bellator has only gotten harder to see and harder for, for most of the fan base to access. I don't know how you fix that while still being, you know, within what Viacom wants to do with Bellator. Because when you got to be looking over at one championship being on Amazon Prime and, and trying to, to pick up a little ground there, and you got to be a little bit worried about that. Uh, yeah. Or PFL being on ESPN, where it just sort of feels like programming that's sort of tacked on to every MMA fan having to have an ESPN Plus subscription. Like, how do you how do you deal with those people being more accessible when you feel like you're actually putting together a really good product, but not as many people are able to see it? Yeah, uh, the Viacom ownership alone kind of puts Bellator in a disadvantageous position because you get the feeling much the same way that ESPN wants to use the UFC as content on ESPN Plus. Like it seems like Viacom just kind of wants Bellator for the content that it can stick over on Showtime, uh, which is probably not a great deal for Bellator viewership. But if that's where the owner of the company wants you to be, that's where you are, I think. And that kind of makes me wonder about if you look at what I guess you consider the top three suitors for second place in the mixed martial arts world, right? Because I don't think in any realistic situation any of these companies overtakes the ufc i think that the ufc is at this point well and and uh firmly established as the top brand in the world and it doesn't seem like much will change that in the near future but if you look at bellator if you look at the pfl and if you look at one championship bellator and one to me both seem to have fatal flaws kind of built into the the fabric of the company if you will and with bellator i think it's the viacom ownership that you kind of have to go where Viacom wants you to be with one. Well, it's Chatry, right? Because he's going to be out here putting out his press releases about how 30 billion people watch every show and all this other stuff. Uh, so despite the fact that one championship is on Amazon prime now, it's more available than it's ever been. They're starting to make something of a push into the American market, it's hard for me to take it totally seriously, right? It's hard for me to be, to imagine a brave future where one championship is like a competing brand with the UFC or the secondary brand. And so I wonder, does it seem like PFL is the promotion among these three that has the fewest fatal flaws? Because I think we could talk about things that are wrong with the, the PFL business model and and the company and things like that but like as i consider this three it strikes me like is pfl in the best bad position of all three of these <laughs> you know maybe maybe they are especially where it seems like we've seen a little bit of a shift in both fan and fighter mentalities toward the pfl like how many fighters have you kind of heard especially when they go over there and they come away with the million dollar check at the end of the season and they go, Hey, how long would I have had to fight in the UFC to make this kind of money? And they start to go, Hey, maybe other fighters are taking notice of something like that. Cause it's one thing to be like, okay, some guy telling you, Hey, Bellator treats me really well. I can sell sponsorships, all that kind of stuff. And you go, yeah, ain't nobody see your fights. And then the PFL says we're on the same streaming platform as the UFC. And this guy, you know, who was mediocre in the UFC, uh, just won a million dollars in one year work for us. And you go, 
shit, I would like a million dollars. And if he could do it, I could probably do it too. Or at least I have a pretty good chance. And I think you see some fighter mentality start to change. Then, and especially at the same time as the UFC is going, we don't have to pay up to keep anybody. The brand is the the business here. Uh, the fighters are interchangeable. And that's an opportunity for somebody to scoop up some of these people and start to make a little more noise with them. And especially if you have ESPN going like, hey, PFL costs a whole lot less than the UFC. Um, maybe they then have an incentive to help you get a little bit bigger deal. All right. My last question before we get out of here for this week, I was pondering this this morning as well as we considered the state of MMA in 2023. Do you think we have seen the end of like the splashy entrant to the MMA market? Do you think that there's another high profile promotion out there that could crop up, you know, with somebody like, you know, Mark Cuban or some of these people that we've seen in the past either threaten or attempt to, you know, make headway into the MMA market? Or is that time passed? Have, have we seen the end of the afflictions? I guess I'll say like the uh, the companies that you know, come into the market. Oh, we're going to disrupt this whole thing and take on the UFC, et cetera, et cetera. Have we seen the last of that? I hesitate to say we've seen the last of it forever, but when you look at how it's gone for the afflictions or when the IFL tried to do it, people like people who showed up and went, we are here to compete with the UFC right out the gates. That's what we do. It seems like that hasn't gone well for anybody. It seems like a great way to lose a whole bunch of money. And while it seemed like we were going for a while there where you could convince kind of any group of rich guy investors that anything is going to be the next huge deal that they should plunge their money in, um, maybe we've seen a, a decline of that mentality as well. And that the the space is pretty busy with people who are duking it out to be number two and to try to turn a profit on some kind of streaming service. I it's hard for me to imagine that somebody looks at the the history of all of that and goes, but I could do it. I could be that huge thing. And I am willing to spend a whole bunch of money right away to immediately compete with the UFC. You know, I mean, every once in a while, somebody will do it with the NFL still, but we're still talking about XFL bullshit. So, Hey, if that can happen, then anything can happen. But I think that the, the era where people saw, Hey, MMA is a huge growth industry. Uh, and there are opportunities still to to get your foothold and to be the dominant brand in this thing. I think people now are not looking at it that same way. Yeah. Uh, you make a good point, I guess, about the XFL and the NFL. Maybe there is no end to potential uh, competition or, or wannabe competition. And I guess that with the pro proliferation of things like BKFC and Dana White's Power Slap League and all this other stuff, maybe there is just no bottom to... Uh, how stupid things can get over here on this side of the fence. And with that, I guess we will wrap up this week's discussion. Uh, we'll, we're back to normal business, I think, next week. Uh, and, of course, we will be over at the Patreon page all week this week. So head on over patreon.com slash co-main event. Check us out for the Wednesday live chat, Thursdays doing the damn thing, and, of course, the Friday power hour. Uh, coming up right now for our $20 patrons, we've got after hours. We're going to uh, take on a slightly different topic here. Uh, but for the rest of you, we'll see you either on the Patreon page or right here next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. As for right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. Then do you want to talk about Michael Bisping's failed media 
conglomerate, Michael Bisping's failed play to control the MMA media? <laughs> okay, first of all, I gotta admit, I didn't even know he would he was ever doing this. Yeah, me neither. Uh, you sent me this article earlier. You want to just basically break down what this is, with, or had been with Michael Bisping, and what had happened? Well, I just want to click on the link, and I get a 404 not found message. Oh, no. 